FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Hi everyone, this is Chet Rehal again. Today I have two special guests with me, my colleague Dr. Raul Espinoza from the Division, Division of Cardiovascular Diseases and Dr. Rizwan Sohil from the Division of Infectious Diseases. And we have a very interesting and challenging topic to discuss today and that is the the issue of device infections. So you know we're putting in more and more pacemakers and ICDs into our cardiac patients and as a consequence we're seeing uh, an increasing number of patients hospitalized with very serious device infections um, that are referred to us from around the country. Rizwan, what is the incidence of device uh, infections? Is it rising or is that just a perception of someone who works on the inpatient side? You know, it's interesting that uh, over time the devices have gotten smaller and smaller and we're implanting a lot more than we used to. So one would think that the combination of the two, you know, more experience in putting the devices in and the smaller size and uh, sophisticated technology, that the incidence would go down. But unfortunately, quite the reverse has happened. So if you look at the, you know, some of the papers that have looked at the epidemiology in the last 10 years, there's been a disproportionate rise in the rate of infections compared to the rate of implantations. Uh, it's not really clear what's driving this. Perhaps it's that we're putting more devices in more people who are sicker, mm -hmm. Uh, even advancing age, you know, previously when the devices were being put in maybe in a relatively younger population and now they, you know, putting devices in people who are 85, 95. Uh, what, what type of organisms are responsible for these and has, has the uh, spectrum there shifted or no? So majority of the device infections are still being caused by gram-positive organisms like staphylococci. Uh, what has shifted over time is that it, it used to be more sensitive organisms like uh, methicillin susceptible staph aureus, and we're seeing more and more of MRSA in our hospital and other practices are seeing the same thing. Raul, when you're implanting these devices, what sort of precautions are being taken in the device lab as uh, they're going in? Uh, is it a full OR uh, setup? Do you use a periprocedural antibiotics? What, what precautions are you taking now? Uh, certainly, that's a very important uh, point. Uh, We've always tried to structure the uh, cath lab suite where we implant devices to mimic the uh, or duplicate the uh, attention to antisepsis that exists down in the uh, uh, surgical suites. Uh, so uh, meticulous uh, uh, chlorhexidine prep of the area uh, where, the, where the implant will occur, uh, proper sterile draping, uh, the surgical personnel uh, conducting the proper uh, hand washing and uh, sterile gowning and gloving as would be the case in any uh, operating room. Um, historically, uh, we've been quite good about giving uh, preoperative parenteral antibiotics which have been shown to reduce the uh, risk of device infection and we uh, continue to do that. We've also in more recent years taken a cue from the cardiac surgical experience where uh, it has been shown that a chlorhexidine bath the night before and the morning of the procedure, uh, perhaps also including uh, uh, Bactroban uh, antisepsis to the nares to uh, deal with organisms there, uh, reduces the risk of uh, uh, cardiac surgical uh, infections. And so we've incorporated that uh, as well into our practice, hoping for uh, even lower infection rates than what has been the case historically. 
Rizwan, once the diagnosis is made, and perhaps you could talk about that, what's required to make a diagnosis of device infection, what are the initial recommendations for uh, antimicrobial drug therapy, particularly the duration of antimicrobial drug therapy? Right. So, uh, you know, in terms of diagnosis, uh, half of the patients will present with pocket infections, which is pretty easy to diagnose. They would have redness, pain, or swelling at the generator site. But what's tricky is making the appropriate diagnosis in patients who just present with fever, and if you do blood cultures, the blood culture would be positive. And that's when it becomes difficult whether the infection is due to the device or due to a different source. So in those cases, traditionally we have relied on you know, transesophageal echocardiography to look at presence of vegetations. Uh, uh, and if there is vegetation on the lead or the, or the, or the valve, that would make a diagnosis of device-related endocarditis. But occasionally you would see that even the echo would be negative. And in that case, if there is no alternative explanation for the bacteremia, then we tend to attribute it to the device. But otherwise, we... Even for a first-time bacteremia? Uh, yes. So, you know, if, if you can find an alternative explanation or source of bloodstream infection, then we generally, you know, attribute it to a secondary source. But if there is no other source and the device is potentially the only source, uh, then a lot of times, especially if it's staph aureus, which is highly likely to seed the device even if it originated from a different source. Uh, compared to that, we look at the gram negatives, and they're very unlikely to seed the device. So we, in, in a recent study, we looked at over 62 patients who had gram negative bloodstream infection uh, from different sources, and only in two of them, so less than 5%, is seeded the device. In all the others, device was kept in place, and none of them relapsed. So it, there seems to be a huge difference if it's a gram-positive bloodstream infection. You'd have to really think hard that it could be an infected device. What's the gram-negative is where if the echo is negative, you can uh, pretty much exclude that, it. That's very helpful. Ronald, maybe you, you perform transesophageal echocardiography as well. Maybe you could tell us what specific things uh, you look for and are, are there risks to the cardiac valves and other structures in the heart uh, with device infections? Yeah. Well, I think in recent years, the literature has shown us that, that, that transesophageal echocardiography, though very important in the evaluation of these patients, introduces as many problems as it solves. Because we know that in the absence of infection, uh, anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of patients who have a, a transesophageal echocardiogram for non-infection-related reasons will have the uh, unexpected observation of debris on the leads that we presume to be aseptic thrombin deposits. Uh, and so when you're evaluating with transesophageal echocardiography a patient who has a suspected device infection, uh, it's, it's difficult to know for certain that you have a pacemaker or defibrillator infection if you see debris on the leads. Similarly, uh, the, the reverse uh, holds true. Uh, we only are able to see by TEE uh, the cardiac leads uh, uh, from about the mid-superior vena cava down to the right ventricular apex. And we don't necessarily see them contiguously along their whole course. And so uh, if we don't see a uh, vegetation on a pacemaker or defibrillator lead by TEE, uh, it doesn't mean the patient doesn't, does not have uh, 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 device infection. Mm -hmm. Certainly there could be debris high in the SVC or in other places. So <clears throat> it remains fundamentally a clinical diagnosis. Uh, of course, when the TEE is being done, we look for other uh, 
uh, consequences of possible device infection. We look for endocarditis of the native uh, valves uh, particularly. Uh, so those are the, uh, the challenges uh, of transesophageal echocardiography in evaluating the device uh, patient who is thought to perhaps have a device-related infection. So what's your general approach now? Do you treat with parenteral antibiotics first and then extract the device? And does every infected device have to come out? And if so, does it have to come out in its entirety, generator and leads? So in the data that we looked uh, you know, at our institution uh, in the last 18 years, and the only predictor of relapse of infection that we could find was that if the hardware was not removed. Mm. So it seems like the removal of the hardware is a key factor in curing the infection. Uh, if you don't remove it, then in certain situations, if the patient refuses or their life expectancy is short, then you have to pretty much put them on mm. chronic suppressive antibiotics. And uh, Do you treat them with a period of an intravenous antibiotics first, or do you go immediately back to the lab? The approach, uh, you know, used to be that sometimes we would wait and treat with antibiotics, but uh, in a recent paper that we published in Heart Rhythm last year, we looked at the impact of timing of device removal, and it seemed like the delay in device removal was associated with increased mortality, mm. not in the short term, but also after discharge from the hospital. So now the approach I think that pretty much everybody uses is removal as soon as possible, especially if they have bloodstream infection or if they have endocarditis. I think you could wait for a few days if there are logistical reasons for pocket infections, um, but for bacteremia or patients who are septic, uh, as soon as possible is the way to go. Well, could you talk about uh, uh, the extractions? Are these relatively straightforward or are they fraught with hazard? And when is it safe to re-implant? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, for, for a, a, an electrophysiologist, uh, certainly device uh, uh, and lead extraction uh, is uh, among the most invasive and uh, precarious of the procedures we undertake. Uh, we've been extracting leads uh, uh, since uh, the 1980s uh, using stainless steel and Teflon sheets. We thought that the advent of laser-assisted lead extraction would lower the risk of extraction substantially, but, but interestingly it has not. And in fact, the, uh, the risk of major uh, cardiovascular laceration requiring uh, urgent surgery for uh, saving the patient remains around two and a half to three percent and a mortality of about half of one percent. Now that's an average. Uh, we can substratify risk based on a variety of factors, uh, lead characteristics uh, being one, but, but the most important uh, uh, feature in terms of stratifying risk is the duration uh, of time that the leads have been in the patient. Uh, so certainly uh, any patient <coughs> with leads that have been in more than uh, one to two years, uh, you should anticipate the potential for uh, significant difficulty in removing the leads related to fibrous adhesions that anchor the lead mm -hmm. to, the, to the vasculature. Uh, are, there, so are there typical areas where the leads tend to get adherent in the SVC or something? Yes, yes. So, so they, they can adhere anywhere along their course, but, but where the greatest risk lies at the time of extraction is the low superior vena cava uh, near the junction with the right atrium and at the right ventricular apex. Uh, any um, either unusual technical challenge at that location or, or, uh, it, or or less than optimal uh, performance by the uh, operator at the time can be associated with a uh, SVC to right atrial laceration or a right ventricular perforation, which of course uh, 
uh, has the great uh, um, likelihood of producing uh, cardiac arrest due to exsanguination either into the mediastinum or into the pericardial space. And uh, having successfully removed a device and the leads, uh, when is it safe to re-implant? Well, that remains a topic of, of, of research and, uh, and, and uh, debate among authorities. Uh, as a point of historical interest, uh, dating way back to the uh, 1980s, uh, a publication from Mayo Clinic uh, described uh, reimplantation on the day of extraction in a small series of patients uh, with seeming success. Now, in more recent years, we've generally waited, but actually we're coming full circle in the sense that uh, we now think that there's some morbidity that patients incur if we wait too long with uh, longer hospital stays, waiting for plastic surgery to close the wound and remove drains. So at this point, our practice uh, has evolved to a point where if uh, blood cultures are negative at 72 hours after extraction, uh, we proceed with device reimplantation regardless of the state of care uh, of the surgical site where extraction occurred. So even if the wound has not been closed or drains removed, if cultures are negative at 72 hours from the day of extraction, we feel safe in, in, in reimplanting. Yes, and, and, and you know, to add to that, the only time we recommend waiting longer is if there's endocarditis of the heart valves, in which case you may have to wait for a week or two but for bacteremia and pocket infections, as, as uh, Raul said, you know, 72 hours after cultures are negative, uh, we, we think it's okay to put them back in. My guests this morning have been Dr. Rizwan Sohail from the Division of Cardiovascular Diseases and Dr. Raul Espinoza from the Division of Cardio Cardiology. And we've been discussing device uh, infections and they made a number of very important points. Firstly, uh, they said that the incidence of device infections appears to be increasing for unclear reasons perhaps related to um, our tendency to implant uh, devices into older, sicker patients uh, whose immune systems perhaps may, may not be uh, uh, as good as they once were. Uh, Dr. Espinoza talked about the importance of uh, strict surgical technique and perioperative antimicrobial coverage. We talked about making the diagnosis and how gram-positive uh, organisms are typically involved and frequently can seed uh, either the pocket or the leads. Dr. Espinoza then spoke about the challenges in, in device extraction, particularly at the SVC RA junction where adherent fibrosis can occur. And importantly, uh, both of them then talked about uh, how our practice has evolved to reimplantation as soon as possible, typically if the blood cultures are negative 72 hours after extraction. So I'd like to thank both of you for a very enlightening discussion. I hope our listeners uh, find it as interesting as I have. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Visit theheart.org to find out more.